Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to this very special bonus episode of Animates. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And today we're going to be discussing the 1997 Studio Ghibli classic Princess Mononoke, directed by the legendary Hayao Miyazaki. We, of course... As a special episode, would like to start out by saying thank you to our Patreon subscribers who allow us to keep the the lights on our uh, in terms of hosting. And this is going out to all those people early. But even if you're listening to it after the fact, know that we greatly appreciate them and what they allow us to do. And if you are interested in becoming a subscriber and getting early access to certain content... That is definitely something that would allow us to maintain and, dare I say, grow our efforts. Oh, definitely. Um, so, Chris, and giving you a hearty thank you. This is also a special episode because Chris and I got to watch this movie together in person. Special moment. Um, it was a couple of months ago. I got married and things have gotten in the way of recording on it since then um but you know here we are we're ready to go we're ready to talk about the movie yes we we were able to watch it together with a group of people who had never seen it before which was wonderful to introduce people to it i have a seen this movie many 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 times since i was a child since 1997 if I recall, yes, 1997 when it first came out. Um, I, I would really you watched it like uh, watched the subbed version when you yeah, were a kid. I, I I may have seen a copy that my stepmom had, or so my stepmom's Japanese. So I was about it, to say Japanese stepmom things. <laughs> yeah. So well, just like I had a I had a copy of the original Pocket Monsters Game Boy game from Japan that wasn't colored. It was just Pocket Monster. I think it was green, technically, but it was in Japanese, and I got it when I was, like, six or seven, and I did not know what I was doing in the game because it was all in Japanese. But um, I did get to... I did I did officially get to play Pokemon, I think, before just about anybody else in the United States. Yeah, the uh, American was created and released in 1999 uh i i think it was released by disney Disney typically owns rights to studio ghibli films in the united states uh the english language script was written by uh which is pretty cool um that's that's neat and um it was also the first and i think maybe to this day only but don't quote me on that Studio Ghibli movie to receive a PG-13 rating in the United States. I wonder if Spirited Away has one. I'm not, I couldn't, I couldn't say. Um, The Spirited Away was definitely like marketed as a, as a children's movie. And I think it's, um, I don't remember if it's Spirited Away or My Neighbor Totoro that has the voices of both of the Fanning sisters in the, in the dub. Howl's Moving Castle might have gotten a PG-13 rating. Now what I, for? Uh, there's like a lot of war and fire and scary things. 
Right. Yeah, but there's not blood. Princess Mononoke has blood. Oh, that is true. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Like a lot of blood. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of blood. Um, arms getting chopped off by wolves. And oh, by the way, if you've never seen Princess Mononoke, I don't know what to tell you because it's 2023 and this movie was made 30 years ago. Yeah. So, like we don't we are not obligated to give you a spoiler alert for something that came out almost 30 years ago i'm sorry <laughs> but if you haven't seen it now is your opportunity to go watch it and understand what we are talking about and to be fair it's nice that we're talking about a miyazaki film because many miyazaki films at ground level have very straightforward plots because the stories themselves are highly embellished artistically. Like there's a lot of room to breathe and look and they typically use very look show, not tell styles of storytelling. So it, it's it, just like Disney movies don't really have complicated plots. Miyazaki films don't typically have very complicated plots. There's, some interesting world building that goes on that you could like really dig into if you wanted to, but it's not really necessary to understand what happens over the course of the, the film. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's definitely Miyazaki's films in general and this one in particular are paced very differently than any American film would be paced especially any animated American film because 99% of all animated features that have ever been made in the United States are for children. Uh, and children famously have a hard time sitting still. So generally speaking, your animated feature is going to be a firm 90 minutes, right? Because that's what a child can can handle. Princess Mononoke is, is actually pretty long. It's about two hours long. But much like with Howl's Moving Castle, which is about the same length, you can really give the gist of the plot pretty quickly because there's a lot of... There's a lot of just, like, space where things unfold very slowly, you know? The pacing is... The pacing feels foreign, you know? And nothing American would ever be paced this way. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of riding animals. There's a lot of just shots of vistas. <laughs> Beautiful. There's a lot of very uh, slowly unfolding appearances. Um, like there's a scene where a bunch of tree spirits called Kodama show up. And that scene happens slower than you might expect like spirits to show up in a western film like they just like pop into existence or whatever it's nice and as a child I wasn't thinking about that stuff I loved this shit um, it's interesting because Miyazaki credits Disney so heavily with his inspiration initially and you could it has been said that Ghibli films are kind of like the Disney of Japan, but it's so weird to me that comparison makes sense, but it also doesn't. 
to me. It's like, yes, big eyes and fantasy settings and um, damsels in distress, but they're so fundamentally different experiences that yeah, the comparison I've, has always felt so hollow. Well, to me, I think that in and of itself is something very Japanese because technically all anime is inspired by Disney, right? The reason that all anime has always had this style of like these big eyes and, you know, it being shiny and stuff is because it was all influenced by, um, by, by Disney and by Western animation. And anime in general and Miyazaki in particular have really showed this ability of Japanese culture and Japanese artistry to look out to other things in the world, see something cool, take it, completely digest it, and then present it back to everyone else in a way that is distinctly Japanese. And in the animation sphere, for the longest time, it was just better. Now, granted, I, I think it... I think as a kid, when you're, oh, I, okay, here's my process. And, and I think this movie very much started it. This movie, uh, I watched it and I thought, wow, Disney's trash. <laughs> well, I mean, like, studio, like, let's, let's be very clear. Um, studio Ghibli has never sort of given in to an impulse to cut costs in the way that Disney has. Um, some of the most beautiful stuff that you'll see in the earliest Disney features, like those beautiful guasha backgrounds and hand animated frames and, and everything, Studio Ghibli never moved away from that. Every single frame of the Ghibli movie to this day is animated by hand in minute loving detail. I mean, there's a reason people go crazy over Ghibli rain, you know? And I, I, I think to some extent I've come around to seeing that that's a little unfair to Disney. Like Disney mm. is, I, I, I think that was me being a Westerner immersed in like Western culture, seeing something that I thought was better and more uh, novel and doing that thing that kids or teenagers do where they're like, oh, everything else is garbage. This I like. Um, yeah, I, definitely. I, I, Disney films do their stuff like Disney. Like, I don't think I appreciated the musical nature of Disney films, whereas Ghibli films aren't musicals. They don't. Mm -hmm. Nobody yeah. actually really sings. And that's a completely you make a completely different style of story for a musical than you do yes. for uh, uh, just like a standard fantasy romp. Um, in addition, I think it should be stated that like Miyazaki deserves mad respect, but he's also definitely a ta like a harsh a harsh person to work for people. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are like truly great artists who are truly like once in a generation talents, especially if those people are Japanese, um, 
are really hard people to work with. Like they hold themselves to an almost impossible standard. And as a result, they hold all of the people they work with to the same standard. Yeah, I I mean, this man can't retire. Not not because anybody's forcing him to not retire, but I believe he's come out of retirement twice. Yeah, I mean, like, well, the thing is, is like when you dedicate your entire life to a craft, like, what are you supposed to do? You know, when you retire, I don't know. You've watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi, right? Right. And yeah, it's the same kind of thing. I feel like to some extent the idea I'm just trying to say, like, these movies definitely weren't built without pain. Yes. <laughs> for the yes, artists who work who worked for Miyazaki. So I, I, I yeah. think that sometimes when this is the thing, like great art, truly great art that people look at and are awed by. I think there's this tendency to overlook the ugly aspects of its creation. And that's like doubly so for Westerners looking at Ghibli films where they go, oh, wow, this is wonderful. Like, I don't know how many conversations I've had with Westerners about how toxic the anime industry can be. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. In terms of like how they treat their employees and people getting burnt out and overworked and and the fact that the anime industry now is like a multi like a a a huge multi multi billion dollar industry that's international and yet they still like don't pay people enough or crunch is always a constant problem so i i think that that deserves to be recognized in contrast with you know such a beautiful film <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's very pretty. Um, Studio Ghibli stuff is always really beautiful. Um, sorry to disappoint, uh, but there aren't a lot of, like, shiny, fluffy-looking foods in this one. Yeah, they they really only... The, the food is, like, I think one of the shots of food is, like, a rice porridge. Yeah. Which looks fine for a rice porridge but it's not it's not like the food that you would see in spirited away yeah there's no like unnaturally buoyant omelets or anything oh my god how's moving castle has an ode to breakfast food that is truly magnificent and i will never stop wanting a slice of bacon that is thicker than my hand (laughs) (laughs) to sizzle up under a demon there you but go. This, this isn't about Hell's Moving Castle, right? This is about Princess Mononoke. So let's go ahead and just get the plot out of the way because it's super duper simple. So um, the plot is basically a Emishi prince. We'll we'll get to what an Emishi is, but an Emishi prince in a small village is attacked by a demon that had come from a distant land. He's cursed and he has to travel to this distant land to hopefully find a solution to the curse. He comes across a mining town run by women, specifically by a person named Lady Eboshi, who is digging iron and creating firearms uh, under the auspices that we learn later of a mercenary, a group of like mercenary monks that are their patrons. 
and in exchange for their know-how, Imish, uh, Lady Eboshi is supposed to kill a god, like a Shinto god of the forest, because the emperor believes that it will bring him immortality. So, uh, Ashitaka, the prince, comes into this very interesting situation and is told to try to see the situation with eyes unclouded. He then uh, meets a guardian of the forest named San, whose mo- adoptive mother is a, is a forest god, a giant wolf. And the movie is basically him trying to understand the people of Irontown and their plight because they're constantly under attack by samurai uh, lords. The uh, forest people and San who are just simply trying to defend the forest from the encroaching destructive environmental catastrophe that is Irontown and solve his own problem. And the plot unfolds really from there with a bunch of people dying and him learning the ways of the forest with San and the wolves and culminating in a showdown between Lady Eboshi, the forest spirit, uh, San, him, and the samur or the the mercenary monks. It's it's an interesting layout, but they kill the god, then they give its head back, and then everything turns green again, and it just kind of ends with him and San together. So that's the basic plot of the film. There are obviously a lot of intricate details in there, but that's. He, he's cured at the very end. He does, he does for saving the forest spirit's head, get cured of his demon curse. Basic points. Um, <laughs> it, like, I'm sure you can tell from, you know, some of those, those plot points and some of what we've been saying so far. Much like Samurai Jack, this movie is really Japanese. Um, it's its way of looking at the world and its subject matter is is very, very Japanese. You don't have to like know things about Japanese folklore or like Shinto or Japanese history to enjoy it, but it helps. This story is also interesting because it hits man versus environment. Man versus man and man versus God. Yes, all, definitely. All together, depending on the the focus. And it, it does so in a way that doesn't feel disorienting, which I appreciate because as you're watching it, there's there's no like intrigue per se. Minor, minor intrigue. The ultimate villain is also perhaps a little bit murkier than a standard Western fantasy film would be. The The villain arguably is Jigo, the leader of the mercenary monks. Mm-hmm. He He's given the women of Irontown, like, the knowledge to make guns and protects them from other lords who are trying to steal their land. But in exchange, he's getting... Lady Eboshi to go do his dirty work. And that is literally killing a forest and the spirit it inhabits to do it, which is all just for money. 
It's just for money. So Jigo is the ultimate opportunist who does who's amoral and just doesn't give a fuck about anybody. And so he's the villain. Lady Eboshi seems like she would be the villain, but she, she's not the villain. She does villainous things, but also it's complicated. Like she also does like good things. Like she gives like the people of Iron Town are are outcasts. Like many of them have leprosy. They're people who wouldn't be able to like live anywhere else. She gives the women a sense of independence and and strength. You know, she does good things too. Like she has she isn't purely driven like purely by avarice, you know. Um she has she has some good intentions. You know what, Paige? She's a hashtag girl boss. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, and I and I, okay, cuz I say that cuz like she ultimately she takes in women from brothels and gives them work and protects them. Mm-hmm. There is a feminist reading of this, which is like they're all of these women are doing what they have to to survive. And anything villainous that they're led to do is because of powerful men who threaten them with violence if they don't do these otherwise problematic things. Yeah. So there, you know, there there is that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, definitely. Um, I I agree with that. Whereas Chico also, there's this whole weird scene very early in the movie where um, uh, our hero is traveling and runs into this monk on the side of the road, and they sit down together and they share a meal. And the monk says a lot of weird cryptic stuff to him. Uh, And when our hero moves on in the morning, the monk is pretending to be asleep, but is actually watching him go. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? And then he shows back up later and is like totally villainous. So he's just like kind of mysterious um, in a way that is left like somewhat unexplained in, in the way that it just wouldn't movie yeah and as a little detail i do believe i remember reading when we watched the film that there's like a sect of buddhist monks who were basically mercenaries if i remember correctly yeah and there was also like at a similar time period to which this is set like a really sort of like violent war of religion driven primarily by like a sect of like a militant sect of Buddhist monks in Japan. Um, like the history of Buddhism in Japan is, is really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think about how, yeah, basically these, these monks are working behind the scenes to fuel Iboshi to get her to do all their dirty work. And to be fair, it's not really their fault that um, mining is a dirty business and destroys the environment. (laughs) That would be happening regardless of their intervention. So um, I think it, it might be helped to unmuddle this to talk about some of like the big 
the big themes and how they play out here. So the the biggest, and this would surprise absolutely nobody who is familiar at all with with Miyazaki's uh, over. Not it's not Ovra. It's his his uh, catalog would is environmentalism. Miyazaki's a big environmentalist, and all of his films touch on the environment in some way. Right? Eventually, we may talk about um, Nazca of uh, the Valley of the Wind, which is overtly about pollution and destroying the environment and the way that it will fuck up the world. <laughs> but Princess Mononoke is about that, too, in a much more grounded sense, where basically... What the one of the major conflicts is human encroachment on the environment and the result that that has for the local inhabitants, which since this is a fantasy film, like the residents of the forest are animals that have sapiens, not all of them, but a lot of them and old gods live in the forest. So large or supernatural animals that have sapiens, but also are are of the forest and mining anybody who's ever seen a mine knows mm-hmm. that it's a dirty polluting business and the miners don't really care about the environment because they are literally just trying to survive but it is nonetheless destroying the environment so that's the big that's the big conflict here and i think the movie does a good job of trying to convey the townspeople as like they are just trying to not get killed by samurai <laughs> and yeah. or local lords, but they are, but it is hurting the environment and the environment is trying to kill them back. So it it's interesting because normally there's like, no, humans are bad, f- hard stop. But this yeah, doesn't it, do that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I so like so something to note is that this movie, while it does contain noted fantasy elements, does take place in a real, actual oh. Japanese historical period, and knowing a little bit about that period I think is pretty relevant to what was what was what we see in this movie basically okay so it's taking place during the late Muromachi period the Muromachi period is roughly 1330s to 1570s during this time period like there is like it is a bakufu it is being ruled by a shogun not directly by the emperor but at the beginning of this, like, there are not daimyos, there are not samurai in the sense that we would recognize them as what later come to be samurai. Uh, the capital is still in Kyoto, like it has not yet moved to Edo. Uh, and there's also a, there is a change in influence between Buddhism and Shinto at this point because there had been several centuries of Buddhism being prom- like more prominent in Japan than these the indigenous religion of Shinto 
But during this period of time, Shinto experiences a resurgence, right? This is also a time period where there are invasions. Like, this is like the Mongols once tried to take over Japan. They did not succeed, <laughs> but they did try. That happened during this time. And Westerners start showing up. There's increased communication with China. So this is generally a period um, of, of instability. Things are changing. There are many aspects of what we recognize as being sort of Japanese culture that don't exist yet. And there's a lot of, like, Japan hasn't shut itself off to the world yet because the Westerners are just starting to get there. So I think that's all really relevant to both the resurgence of Shinto and the sort of instability that's happening in society at that time are... Like, there's a reason that he chose to set this story in that time period, right? Yeah, and I, and I should say, I know I mentioned guns earlier. They're more like cannons on a stick. So early, early, early firearms. Things that take like two minutes to load. <laughs> yeah, uh, And have definitely. one shot. So, um, but yeah, I... Uh, it's also worth noting that um having having an environmental conflict at play doesn't take away right it's it's both literal and metaphorical in in this movie so they are literally clear-cutting forests but the main conflict centers around literally killing gods so both metaphorically and literally killing forests and this would have probably, uh, no, I don't want to say it like that. Sorry. I got lost in trying to explain my feelings here. But something else that I find absolutely fascinating is, is that, um, this movie centers around, a group of people in Japan that I don't normally or, or hadn't ever known about. Right. So mm -hmm. Ashitaka is a prince of the Amishi. So um, you may not know that there were people in Japan that are indigenous to Japan. Yes. Um, we don't usually think of Japan as being made up of multiple peoples, but that is a mistake to, to think about that. I certainly as a kid didn't really understand that. But um, for example, there are the Ainu peoples who are also indigenous to the Japanese islands, specifically Hokkaido, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. But yes, that's correct. Or like Osaka, like those used to be the Ryukyu islands, you know, and that's a different ethnic group as well. So we, we see these people, they basically over, right, over different regimes are assimilated, not unlike people in the Americas are assimilated as Europeans colonize. So um, they show up here as a, as a dying people, 
Mm-hmm. And that's specifically kind of like an, an early plot point is that Ashitaka is their last prince and their people are all getting old and their bloodlines are running thin. So um, this is it's interesting because as a child, I didn't understand how tragic that was, like how tragic it is that Ashi, Ashitaka is cursed and has to leave and never return. Because, you know, in, in Western stories, it's like, oh, you get kicked out of your village, you go settle somewhere else. It's not the end of the village. But his cursing is literally probably the ultimate end of their people. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, Because, like, to be very clear, not... The Ainu, the Imishi, like, these people... Yeah, some of them were assimilated, and you can probably, like, you can definitely find actual Ainu people in Japan today. Um, but you can't find Amishi people. Like, there are no people in Japan anymore who identify as Amishi, who speak a language or dialect that is Amishi, who practice any cultural traditions that are Amishi in any way. They were, they went away, they died out. Um, if they weren't, pushed off of their land and into more and more remote areas if they weren't exterminated then they were assimilated to the point where they functionally disappeared as a culture you know um and i think that's like i think that's relevant because that's a thing that a lot of people people in the west don't understand that or know about that and that's not necessarily an accident you know this sort of uh there are a lot of places in the world that and japan is one of them where in the West, we associate it with one specific ethnicity, and that is a type of propaganda. <laughs> you know, there were and are people of different ethnicities in in Japan. You know, um, they're essentially like there. It's a long and interesting history. It goes back into like the seven hundreds, but essentially there was suddenly something called the Yamato Empire. And that eventually became what we would think of as Japanese today. But they weren't the only people there. And that wasn't the only way that it could have gone, you know? Yeah. And and just in case people think that, um, like, people in Europe had uh, a name or a, a patent on naming other ethnic groups offensive things. Um, <laughs> like, bar... <laughs> what? Okay. This may be apocryphal, so you'll have to tell me. Doesn't the word barbarian, isn't it onomatopoetic from the way that Romans thought people who were Germanic sounded? It was uh, Greek for anybody who spoke any language other than Greek. Uh, okay. All languages other than Greek sounded like bar 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 Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so they um, called them barbarians. <laughs> um, so Imishi is translated as shrimp barbarian. <laughs> Because um, both the Ainu and I believe both the Ainu and the Amishi were were quite short. Yeah, I mean, like in the Western world, we think of what, you know, you know, ethnic Japanese people to be very short. So I would assume that I don't know if they called them shrimps because of like being small like we do in English or if it was some other reason. But I would have to assume that they were indeed very small people. Yeah, so so specifically, uh, the Ainu are, were were based in Hokkaido, and the Imishi were Honshu based mm-hmm. Honshu based ethnic group. Um, but yeah, they come up. 
right? Ashitaka is specifically uh, a member of this this group. And when he leaves, when he ventures out into the broader world, all of the people that he's encountering are not, right? And they do a good job of of showing that difference. Like he rides a giant elk that nobody he wears has, a weird hat. That, yeah, <laughs> he he's exceptionally talented as a hunter and a tracker. And an archer specifically, which is something that is associated with like that comes out of the wars between, you know, Japanese people and Ibishi that like they were written about in the historical sources as being very exceptional archers. So Ashitaka, um, it's interesting to me that he I, 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 I now I'm curious if they spoke the exact same language. Because he kind of goes out into the world and can talk to everybody. And I'm wondering if that was just to make the movie work or if the Amishi also spoke what would have then been contemporary Japanese. Um, there, The hypothesis is that the Amishi spoke a, a Japonic dialect um, and that it was... Like it was, it was a related language to, you know, Yamato Japanese speakers. Um, it, it's apparently similar to the historical Izumo dialect, um, which is like a provincial dialect, essentially. Um, so they probably had. Well, so at by the time you're in the Muromachi period, yeah, he probably speaks. Japanese because you just couldn't you wouldn't be able to function in the world if you couldn't but even several hundred years before it seems likely that there was at least some degree of mutual intelligibility because they're both Japonic languages and they're very closely related okay okay that was very educational I learned a lot yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so we get to see yeah we get we get that exposure which is which is super nice but I didn't I didn't get that as a kid I only really understood the significance of that as an adult. Yeah, definitely. And it's the same thing, like, all of the fantasy elements that are present are, like, they're very much elements of sort of traditional Japanese folklore and, like, Shinto mythology. The forest, they talk about kami all the time in here, which is... It's it's translated as God here. It's most commonly translated as God in English, but it is an like it's an animistic religion, right? Like there are, for example, we see there are multiple boar gods in this story. You know, um, there's not just one boar god. There's several boar gods. You know, different places have their own gods. Different kind of animals can have multiple gods right um and then there's all these other different kinds of things and and spirits which you know are 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 present the world is is replete with spiritual energy and creatures even the the transformation that the great forest spirit goes through at night when they call him a night walker is actually it is essentially a very specific kind of yokai. It's called a dai darabochi, and it's a kind of just like enormous 
enormous yokai that sort of like marches across the land like picking up mountains and shit <laughs> you know um but like even that is not that's not solely an, an invention of Miyazaki's own imagination that's something that like a Japanese person would probably be like ah various yokai you know yeah a guy a, it it <sighs> It's hard as a child, I think, understanding that the word God does not mean God in the sense of a Christian God, which is like an invisible, all-powerful being. Whereas, like, these are more like gods are just very prominent supernatural beings that are powerful but also can die. Like, these gods are gods that age and die under appropriate conditions. And there is a little bit of a hierarchy, to be fair. The the forest spirit is clearly of a higher order than the wolf god or the boar gods because he has dominion over them. But I wouldn't call it dominion. He can exercise power over them, choosing who lives and who dies. But that's very different than even the Greek Greek gods who are a pantheon, but right, they're all kind of very 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 powerful and have domains over a multitude of aspects of life whereas this is like no nah, it's just a very powerful spirit and that's the thing is like kami can be like a bunch of different things like they can be deities but they can be spirits they can be natural phenomena and they can be holy powers they can be important ancestors there can be uh after their death there can be they can be really great leaders after their death um they are not like 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 many polytheistic religions like they are not usually inherently good or inherently evil they're complex and their shinto has this like it's very eastern but it's like a con a concept of universal energy right called musubi and kami are seen as manifestations of that right so it's like but like they are inherently connected to nature nature and kami are sort of like one in the same you know so to like to harm nature is to inherently do harm to these spiritual like whatever spiritual beings are associated with that particular place or thing yeah and i and i think that you that that point is underscored by the fact that the gods aren't having a great time by the time that ashitaka arrives this they are not enjoying themselves this movie is i hate i this word is these words have gotten like a lot of uh <laughs> This word has gotten a lot of buzz in the past five years, but like it's a liminal space, like a period of transition um, <laughs> between um, basically the untamed wilds and humans living in small settlements in mm -hmm. this part of the world and people starting to use technology to more holistically carve out nature for their own. And the gods are in the process of dying. Right? The whole the whole reason that the boar attacks Ashitaka's village is because he was fighting against humans encroaching on his land and they poisoned him. But before that, every day, 
I believe the wolves even comment that like every day more of more of nature is lost, more of us becoming stupid, that this is just a, a slow disaster occurring for them as a part of history. And it's very interesting because there is this movie has no solution to that. Right? This isn't a movie where like an enchanted forest is threatened and then a prince shows up and gets everybody to agree to stop harming the forest. No, this is not that kind of movie. Ashitaka manages to pull some bodies out of the wreckage of this catastrophe of history and the machinations of a Buddhist warrior monk. Like that's that's it. It it's kind of grim. This 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 movie definitely feels like a a darker side of Miyazaki. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of violence. Yeah. Um I think it's like really important to note that like at the end when like you know the forest spirit's head has been cut off and the headless nightwalker version is like stumbling around like bleeding ooze all over the earth that's destroying everything, right? And so then they give him back his head and the result is not that he like sticks his head back on and he's fine now because he's a god. No, he still dies. He's just like forgiving when he dies. And so he manages to put some of the environmental ills to rights through like sacrifice. The god of that forest is dead now. He's dead. There's no more God of that forest. It doesn't really matter, you know, that everything's not completely destroyed. That there's something fundamental about that place that is gone forever now. And I think that's a, that's that's a lesson that hits really hard right now in yeah. in in a in a large sense because the message is kind of listen, you can staunch the bleeding and you can allow nature to recover, but once you go too far, once certain sins are committed, they are committed and there is no returning something completely to what it was. And that's something that we're all going to reckon with over the next 50 years. Yeah, like even if we do something really, really drastic right now, there are things that are there's damage that we're still going to be dealing with for hundreds of years like there's going to be species that will still go extinct you know there's going to be fundamental changes to weather patterns that can't be reversed right at this point like it's the idea that it's like the you as a human had the the hubris and the avarice to think that you could just do whatever you wanted just take nature and do whatever you wanted to it for your own needs and that there wouldn't be any consequences but there will be consequences and even if you realize your mistake and say oh shit and try to hand nature back its head there will be consequences that might make it better that might make the consequences less bad but it doesn't mean that there won't be any consequences and yet still, you can't, I never felt animosity about the regular people of Irontown. Like those individuals. No, those ladies are cool. Those ladies are fucking awesome. And they're all trying to survive. 
they can you really say yes you should have been comfortable living in a brothel in this time period yeah no that would suck ass like it i think miyazaki rightly points the blame at the emperor for wanting something so frivolous at Jigo for being an immoral, greedy asshole and somewhat at Lady Eboshi for actually doing the deed. She suffers for it and she, she should, she, she lost her arm and could have died. And I think ultimately she deserved that, but she also had very little choice if she wanted to make sure that the local lords didn't kill them all. I mean, yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I so something I wonder um, is Miyazaki doing a little bit of a noble savage thing here though like think about it it's like okay put this story in an american context and it's like it's like a like i don't know let's say lakota man you know um and he you know has to like go and like deal with this thing and part of the reason that he's able to deal with it and 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 see it with eyes unclouded is because of his superior connection to nature, you know, his superior understanding, right, of the natural world. That's something that, you know, the white people have lost or whatever, um, which is like a very common story. And it's not. It's still racist, even if it's not a negative stereotype, you know? Yeah. Wow. I've never thought about that before. My first gut instinct is to say, well, Ashitaka is presented as kind of just bumbling into each plot point. (laughs) That's true. Ashitaka doesn't, he's not, (laughs) he, he makes, he is willing to go all in and that allows him to jump into each new challenge and rise to it, but he's not doing it with any kind of superior intellect or he keeps getting angry and that clearly is making his curse worse. So I think uh, maybe there is some of that going on and I just don't have the context in their culture to see, like to say that as much, but he seems pretty flawed and immature in a couple of instances that make me feel like that. The thing with the noble savage is that they're always, at least in my experience in media portrayed as like super wise beyond their years. And they seem to have a connection that gives them answers just sort of from nowhere. Whereas Ashitaka has to literally go find all the answers himself. He, He's never really given anything by virtue of being an Amishi. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's also like, 
It's worth noting that, like, Imishi don't exist anymore to be hurt or offended by a stereotype. Um, you know, it's like, uh, like, the, the last major defeat of the Imishi people happened in 802 AD. So, like, they haven't, like, really existed as a culture like that could be like found and interacted with and like recognized for like almost a thousand years um so i mean you know there's it, it gets a more a little more complicated with that when you start to talk about like ethnographies and dna studies and stuff like that but it's like you know it's like okay so is it like even if he is doing a noble savage thing like does it matter as much if the people that he's portraying that way literally don't exist anymore and can't be like hurt by it or offended by it i don't know well okay so if this was set during the muramachi period then this would have been one of the last dwindling embers of yes. the amishi yes Okay. Okay. Um, seeing as how, like, yeah, major defeats were, at that point, 600 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Several hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah. A so, long uh, time. But, but no, that's it. I've never, I've never thought about that before, but that's still, like, a very interesting question. And my gut wants to say no, but... That might be un, you know, maybe maybe a person who is more studied in this particular aspect of Japanese history would have a different opinion. Yes, if you know things about this, please contact us. Yes, I would love to hear how. No, this is definitely very racist, <laughs> or or not, um, or like, no, nah, it's not racist. It's fine. <laughs> but um, another thing that I feel like kind of connect so if you've recently listened to our samurai jack episode uh, one thing that i think really shows how hayao miyazaki makes movies arguably how studio ghibli makes movies and connects to the effects that it has like on western creators is the Dedication to showing, not telling. And um, the role that nature plays in carrying a story. All right, so Samurai Jack has very little dialogue. And Princess Mononoke has dialogue, but it doesn't have a ton. Not, not really. Not for a two-hour movie. No, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um... So a lot and a lot of time has been just showing Ashitaka traveling spaces that often would get cut in a lot of other films for, for time, mm -hmm. right? To cut costs, to... It's like, we don't need a total of 20 minutes of him riding on an elk. <laughs> like, Belle never, it never showed her traveling to the Beast's castle. Like, yeah. the full trip, right? It just... And, and they could have, right? She travels through a beautiful forest. They could have spent a little of, like, a little time letting her just not talk and walking her through a beautiful scene. And they chose not to because that's not really Disney's or, or like, the Western style. They got mm -hmm. straight to her showing up at the next plot point, 
Whereas this is, no, the journey, Ashitaka's journey through nature and observing is palliative for the audience and is important to characterizing his experiences. And it's so refreshing when they do that. That's part of why Samurai Jack has that feeling of melancholy that it does, because you get to spend time with them in silence alone in nature. Yes, definitely. I just have to, I, I think that will be something that will keep coming up with, with Japanese media and Japanese inspired media. And yeah, I agree. I don't think Westerners have really done that still. I think that's still today a huge difference. Well, because we don't like to be alone with our thoughts. Like, you know, we're, uh, we need to be constantly entertained and stimulated. Yeah, the, the Western conception of plot like the obsession with plot. Well, like when you even think about it, like something like Shrek, like the whole story is about a journey, but like there's very little content of them just like walking, you know? And like, like, oh, they're just walking and there's just only diegetic sound. Forget that. That's not happening. Well, and traveling, if it's done, is handled in a montage. Yeah. Right? So you can't just have Fiona and Shrek walking. They have to be doing it to the classic 1990s jam, Smash Mouth. Well, that's not... They they don't use that for that art, but... They don't? They use All Star for a montage introducing you to Shrek and his life in the swamp. Oh my God, really? I thought that was the, I thought that that was the music they use for the montage when they like blow the frog up. No. Oh, wow. No, they use cute romantic music for that part. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but my point still stands. (laughs) That my point still stands that they do a montage instead of just having them travel. Yes. Uh, So I, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that's bad. It's just, it's a shame when it would be nice to see some Western media that breathes. Yeah. On a journey. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's like, well, all the movies are two and a half fucking hours long now, even if they're about Spider-Man. So surely there's space for someone to just, you know, quietly like ride the train or something. Or like I've, If people are feeling sad, you don't necessarily have to have them say, I'm sad. You can have them stare out a window as they're traveling through space and just kind of like, let us sit there for 30 seconds. Yeah. Feeling their sadness instead of them yelling at one of the 20 million Spider-Man, I'm sad. Yes, exactly. I actually actually think that that's something that the Spider-Verse movies do very well, actually, is letting people just kind of like sit in well-colored vistas and feel things without something happening. Yeah, I think definitely the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies were better at that, too. There were times where Toby just stared out of a window and was sad. (laughs) Well, doesn't doesn't Toby always look sad? Right, he does. <laughs> he's he's got perpetual. He's a sad, sad looking man. He's a <laughs> he's a sad looking man. Um, <laughs> so I guess 
we've talked a lot about Princess Mononoke. Is there something in this movie that you loved and something that you hated? We can we can finish there. Um, I loved all of the beautiful animation. You know, just absolutely gorgeous. Always a treat, a feast for the eyes. I hated the fucking daytime's forest spirits body. I hated it. The Kodama's little little doe bodies. No, those are cute. The but the 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 literal spirit the of the forest, the god of the forest. Oh yeah, like with the its way that. Deer, oh, I hate it. <laughs> its neck is too long, and its face is just like grotesque. Uh, it's the worst. I hated it so much. It showed it, and I was like, "No!" And, and the no. way, and it's not a. It's portrayed as a deer, but it doesn't have a snout, so it's just yeah. Got it's like got a, like a flat human face. Oh, I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love two things. One is one is kind of a meme for me. I love the fact that Ashitaka gets so strong that his bow and arrow just cuts people's heads off. <laughs> And he's, like, surprised by it. Um, the other thing that I love is that all of the the action is very well choreographed, but also yes. very grounded. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it's not an anime fight, right? It's just a fight that looks very good. Yes. Yes. Um, I... I <sighs> squealing pig blow like squealing pig murder kind of like gave me nightmares for a while. Like all of these boars that like die. Oh no. You know what I fucking hate? No. Cross that one out. The hunters in the deer or in the boar skins. That crawl along the ground. Oh, oh god, that's the worst. It's so upsetting. Like it's it's uh, really but it's like it's it does such a good job of portraying a human-based horror to an animal. Yeah, it's it's like like it makes me feel uncanny valley for an animal, but I'm not an animal. I shouldn't be able to experience uncanny valley for an animal, you know? So I, I've always hated. I, they're great, but I hate. I hate them so much. It's very disturbing. It's very. I disturbing. didn't like it. I think I was like, we were like eating Mexican food, and I was like, no, this is horrible. <laughs> so I hate it. Those are my. Those are my loves and hates. So that's that's Princess Mononoke. We could keep going. This. So many people have written think pieces and. Um, you could really dig into specific, like, the way that this person did this and the way that this scene unfolded. And this show has never really been about that granular of a look because I like to look at this as a holistic thing and the way that it makes me feel in general. And it makes me feel mm -hmm. both good and dark. And yes. it's beautiful while doing it. So yes, uh, I continue to love it. I will watch it till I die. That's how yeah. I feel. Yeah, it's a great movie. You should definitely go watch it. Um, and so with that, I think that, uh, you know, in closing, 
Uh, I'd just like to say, if you're listening to this early on Patreon, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you're listening to it later when it comes out on the free feed, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. Um, you can find us in all of the places. Facebook, we're Animates Podcast. Twitter, we're at Animates. Gmail, Animates at gmail.com. The letter, the numeral eight replaces the letters A-T. Um... And just a general to everyone, thank you so much for listening. I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates.